Being in politics, it's not a profession. You need to be driven by something, to believe in something. And I believed in the need to achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinians. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, a special Storymark live conversation with former Vice Prime Minister Tsipi Livni. Tsipi Livni is one of the most powerful women in the history of Israeli politics, having served in eight different cabinet positions over a 20-year span. She's a master of diplomacy and dedicated much of her career to tireless efforts in Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations. Her story is fascinating and punctuated with drama, humor, and wisdom. I'm inspired by the incredible mark Tsipi has left on not only the Israeli politics, but the world itself. Now please enjoy an excerpt from my live conversation with Tsipi Livni, which was held in Tel Aviv in front of 150 Israel track participants. Former Vice Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs Tsipi Livni, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show. It's a pleasure to be here. So, since we're in Israel, may I call you Tsipi? I would be surprised if you call me in another name. You know. <laughs> Your parents were both active in the Irgun, and for those of you who are not familiar, it's an underground Jewish militia that fought for the foundation of Israel. Your father, Eitan, was the Irgun's commander of operations. At some point, he was sentenced to, by the British to 15 years in prison, but luckily was freed only two years later in the Iker prison break. He later became a politician and served over a decade in the Israeli parliament. Your mother, Sarah, famously known for robbing a train, dressed as a pregnant woman and using the 50,000 Palestine pounds that were supposed to fund the British military for their goons activities. So I guess we all have stories of our parents. Uh, I guess my question is, how did your family influence you both in terms of your personal beliefs and political views? Okay, just to make it accurate, it's not that my mother decided to rob a British money train. This was the blind date of my parents. Both of them uh, met while robbing this British money train. Uh, yes, the men uh, stopped the train and the women took the money, put it in nylon socks and put it around. So if they will be caught by British uh, soldiers, they can say that they are pregnant. So this is the way my parents met. And later, both of them were in prison. My father was in Accra prison and was in charge on the operation of breaking out of prison. Uh, something that was quite an heroic story because the Accra prison were very strong. Napoleon at the time couldn't break it. And this small group of warriors uh, succeeded in doing so. But the story of how my mother escaped is even more heroic because she asked somebody to inject her milk. And this created symptoms of illness, high fever, and she, this, she learned what are the symptoms of appendicitis, and she said, well, it's uh, hurt me. So they took her to a hospital, and when they left, the physicians left the room to wash their hands before the operation, she jumped from the second floor and escaped. Wow. So the stories that I grew up upon, it was not fairy tales, nor uh, Red Hood or Snow White. It was about how they were, how was it in prison, how they break out. They decided to get married uh, just the day after the establishment of the state of Israel. 
So they are the first couple who got married in the independent state of Israel. Wow. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what they were and the stories and the ideology is also part of me today. So you served in the Israeli Defense Forces as a lieutenant. And after leaving the army, you began law degree at Bar-Ilan University. Why did you choose to pursue law? Uh, yes, I was officer in the army, and in the army, officer can judge. They have the judicial uh, authority to judge uh, the soldiers. So I learned about the law that applies in the army. And then I quit the army. At the time, the first thing that you do is to go to university. The choice was between law school or uh, biology. And when I was accepted to law school, this is what I do. But you know that I didn't really spend time in university. So after one year at law school, you were recruited by the Mossad, the National Intelligence Agency of Israel, and served there for several years. So I recognize that you cannot tell us everything about your time there, but I am curious about what made you want to join the Mossad and how was the experience? I was offered to join. I was a student at the university. And at first I started just to do jobs for students. And then uh, it is very tempting. And I was offered uh, after one year in the Mossad to go to Paris. Who can say no to this? I was 20-something and I was sent to Paris. And it was quite an experience. But after coming back, I went to another operational course in the Mossad. But still, it was parallel to university, so I didn't attend all, you know, the, <laughs> the class. Uh, I was mostly in the Mossad, but when I got married, I quit. So it's not a very feminist uh, um, declaration. Sorry. It's a family decision. I became feminist later. It comes. <laughs> So you receive a law degree, and after a decade as a lawyer, you entered politics. What was the turning point that led you to make this career move, and were the people around you supportive? So I was a lawyer by profession. I loved it, really. I'm a very good lawyer, better than a politician, I think. <laughs> and I was not involved in politics, because my father was in politics, and I saw how it works, and I said, okay, that's not for me. And then Israel was split. The Israeli society was split between two different camps. It still exists today. My parents, the Irgun, they believed in greater Israel, in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land, not only between Jordan River and Mediterranean Sea, but also the other side, the biblical Israel. So I believed in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land, but yet part of their values was believing in equality and giving equal rights to minorities. And I understood that since we are having in this tiny place also millions of Palestinians living here, we need to split the land. So I felt that I'm in between. I mean, I could understand both sides, but I didn't feel that my voice is being heard. And there was such hatred between these two camps, and it was just a few weeks before Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated here, not far from this place. So I decided to jump to the water and to join politics. And a few years later, I was elected to the parliament, to the Knesset. Being in politics, is, it's not a profession. 
you need to be driven by something, to believe in something. And I believed in the need to achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And basically, this is what I was focused on during my political life. In 2005, Ariel Sharon, the late prime minister, introduced his plan for Israel's disengagement from Gaza, which you became an outspoken proponent for. Why did you think it was the best course of action? And was this departure from your political views? The disengagement from Gaza, the meaning was to pull out our forces, the army, to dismantle settlements and to evacuate around 8,000 people from their homes. It was a very difficult decision. And this was a moment in which I met these settlers that I decided to evacuate from their homes. And uh, I had meetings with them, trying to, in a way, to soften the damage, the personal damage for them. But you need to look at somebody's eyes and to say, because of my decision, you are going to leave your home with your family, not because you want to, but because this is our decision. And the only thing that keeps you so strong is because my understanding was that These are those that are paying the price of my decision, but those that are going to gain from this decision is the entire generation and millions of people. Therefore, I was very supportive of this plan. I tried also to meet these people, not to avoid these difficult and very emotional meetings. So I'd like to challenge you a little bit because soon after Israel withdrew from Gaza, Hamas took over the Strip and since then fired more than 8,000 rockets into Israel, causing a lot of damage and casualties. So in retrospect, when you think about that decision for disengaging from Gaza, I was would, it the right decision? I would make this decision again and again and again, and I will explain why. Firstly, they were rockets fired before disengagement, and more than that. Before we left Gaza, there were settlements there, so civilians lived there and they were terror attacks against them. And children were hurt, and and this is also part of my responsibility. Secondly, we had soldiers there, so the terror attacks were within Gaza Strip, but against soldiers and and civilians. The other option was not to have a unilateral withdrawal, but to negotiate the withdrawal. I suggested that we'll do it in an agreement with the more moderate part on the Palestinian side. Frankly, didn't want to do it. And and this brings me also to another, sharing something else from uh, decision-making. In the end of the day, there is one decision that you need to say yes or no. So I could have think about maybe better ways to do it, but when this was on the table, yes or no, so I supported it. So in 2006, you joined Ariel Sharon's new party, Kadima, and served as vice prime minister and minister of foreign affairs. At that point, you had already broken many barriers, including holding the most positions and serving in the highest ranking government positions of any woman in Israel's history since Golda Meir. So my question is, what does it all mean to you? And do you see yourself as a role model for women? 
it's not for me to decide uh, whether I'm a role model or not. I said before that I was not a feminist before I joined politics. And things were obvious for me. So I couldn't understand that there are those that for them, a woman at that job is not the obvious. So I felt that I know what Israel is needed, what are the decisions that we need to make, that I'm strong enough to make the decision. And I ran for office to be a prime minister after I was foreign minister. And this is maybe also a difference because my decision to run for office was just after I became and served as a foreign minister. When I ran for office, it was for me, it was the obvious. And then it took others by surprise. And you know this uh, question that also Hillary Clinton got, who's going to answer the phone 3 a.m.? I mean, they are not against a woman that will answer the phone and say, yes, just a moment, I'm giving you the prime minister. But I'll never forget this campaign because I was supported by women. And I felt that they are giving me strength. And also that I'm giving women strength, not just women in politics, but I'm giving them strength to ask for the salary like the other guy in the office or to say to their guy or husband, uh, you will not uh, beat me or uh, all, all the stuff that women are meeting during their lives and they need strength, inner strength to stop it. And there was a moment that was really touching. And later I also wrote it in a letter to Hillary after she lost the election. During the campaign, we had a meeting uh, and two young new immigrants from Ethiopia came with flowers to the stage. And one, uh, she was 12 at the time, and she said, I also want to be a prime minister when I grow up. And I said, wow, because new immigrant from a minority group in Israel that sometimes unfortunately face racism, she looks at me and she says, yes, I'm going to be prime minister. So I felt that I'm doing something that really, well, you use the, the word role model, but, but I give hope for women to dream and look also normal for them to reach these positions. With so many leadership roles under your belt, what was the most challenging one? The negotiations for peace. And they did it twice. I, I, basically, I'm the chief negotiator for peace in the last two rounds of uh, negotiations. One was in my position as a foreign minister, the other as a justice minister, but it was in the agreement that in any position I will negotiate because this was the reason for me to be in politics. So this is one of the positions. And the other is being a member of the security cabinet. I was part of the trio that decided on the when and how Israel will bomb the Syrian nuclear project. I remember watching the screen with the Israeli aircrafts coming back to Israel, knowing that we succeeded. But it was a huge secret. Nobody knew about it. These are moments that are, that are really dramatic, not only for me, but in the life of a nation. When you send soldiers to a military operation, hopefully everybody comes back, but it's not for sure. And at the time when I made these decisions, my own two sons were in the army. These are the moments that are personally very, very difficult, and you need to make this decision. 
So in 2019, you announced your decision to retire from politics. Was there any one moment or event that inspired this decision? I make my decision when my intuition says, this is the right moment and this is the right decision. And 2019, I tried to form that different leaders from different parties will join together and form one party and create hope in our camp of what we call center-left, liberal Democrats in Israel. And something was formed with generals at the time and uh, who joined politics. And I could continue, but I said, okay, I'm splitting the camp. Since I believe that there's a need for one big party, why should I stay in, in a smaller party? So I felt that this is the right thing to do, and I did it. And in recent years, many have called for you to return to politics. And I wonder if you seriously consider a political comeback. No. <laughs> you ask about quitting politics, I felt alone. Maybe this was the right way to describe it. I felt alone. I believed in peace between Israel and the Palestinians, but it became a dirty word. Nobody spoke about it in Israel. I believed in democracy and things, things are changing. And people said, what are you speaking about? Israel democracy is fine. Nobody is going to attack it from within. So I felt alone. And this is what changed, that people are coming out. People understand what's going on. People are willing to fight. So together with them, I'm optimistic that this camp believes in democratic values. It's not just against Netanyahu. It's for our democratic values. It's wonderful. So what I'd like to do now is ask you a few questions that we ask each of our guests. And you already answered one of them. What are you most optimistic about? I guess that that's the yes, answer. Yes, I am. Um, you need so to be optimistic when you fight for something. Really. I'm not saying, okay, I'm not going to win. Of course we are winning. I totally agree with you. And I think you need to be optimistic every day when you wake up. <laughs> it's, um, it's part of life. But um, okay, so what piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? Listen to your heart, to your inner compass, not to your political advisors. <laughs> That's a good one. What is one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? For many years, people thought that I'm a very cold person. And I think that this was because for, for women in politics, the choice is between being weak or a bitch. <laughs> Truly. Uh, because if you are nice, so the meaning is that you are very weak. And therefore, I was, at first, I was uh, portrayed as a strong but very cold. And I'm not that. I'm not that guy. <laughs> Thanks. I have a feeling that I know that answer, but uh, what are you currently obsessed with? Currently obsessed? Democracy? It's obsession, yeah. <laughs> Former Vice Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tsipi Livni, it was so wonderful having you on our show today. Thank you. Enjoy Israel. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a transcript of today's episode, along with past interviews, on our website, storymarkpodcast.org. 
Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go. See you next time.